Hey, everyone. Before we start, I want to do a quick plug for our next Big Idea Club subscriptions. Here's how it works. We send you the two best nonfiction books each quarter, eight per year, selected by our curators. You might have heard of them, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, Susan Cain, and Daniel Pink. They work with us to pick the best new books, and then we deliver them to you in a box or as ebooks, along with reading guides, e-courses, and other goodies. It'll make you smarter, faster, guaranteed. Sign up now at nextbigideaclub.com and use the code PODCAST for 20% off. Order today for yourself or as a gift for the curious people in your life. And we'll also send you Adam Grant's latest book, Hidden Potential, for free. That's nextbigideaclub.com, promo code PODCAST. I hope you'll join us. LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, achievement culture is hurting our kids and us. What can we do about it? You've probably heard some of the dire news recently about the mental health of American teenagers. According to the CDC, the share of teenagers who report experiencing, quote, persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness has nearly doubled in the last decade. And the percentage of teens who say they're seriously considering suicide has also risen dramatically. For any parent or friend of a parent or young person listening, these numbers are frightening, to say the least. But there's another piece to this story, an anomaly in the data that hasn't been as widely reported. Teens everywhere are suffering from anxiety, depression, and substance abuse. But it turns out kids at high-achieving schools are struggling at much higher rates. This hits close to home for me. My kids are growing up in this world. It may strike close to home for many of you as well. The dynamics at play here are not foreign to me. I was stressed in high school and disaffected. My intellectual curiosity was very nearly extinguished by the culture of grade obsession. I remember at one point when my grades were flagging, my parents offered me cash for every A on my report card. This, though well-intentioned, had the effect of instantly collapsing whatever personal pride I took in my work at the time. The more external pressure was applied to me to perform, the less interested in school I became. I had an attitude problem until I got to college where all of a sudden learning was reframed as something I was doing for fun. And then learning became a joy. It has been ever since. Now with three teenage boys, I'm on the other side. I'm the one trying to figure out how can I best support and empower my kids without unduly stressing them out in a world that has become ever more competitive? This question invites many others. Why has school become increasingly stressful for American teens? Are we parents the problem? Is this connected to the broader dissatisfaction and stress among American adults? Is it more competition in the college application process, fewer good job prospects, a pernicious force in our society that tells us you have value in proportion to what you achieve? While I'm at it, 
why do we educate humans as we do, force-feeding our kids' knowledge, assessing their potential based on four years of high school performance, when they're wired to only care about socializing, then putting a stamp on their foreheads in the form of the college they attend, indicating supposedly how smart they are, and then when they're in their 20s, when they really become curious, we tell them, oh, your education is now over, all that matters now is contributing to the bottom line. Why is this so? How can we make it better? And how will new technologies, specifically artificial intelligence, help us change these dynamics? That is the topic of today's show with two very special guests, New York Times bestselling author Jennifer Wallace and Yale Law School professor Daniel Markovitz. Our conversation was recorded in front of a live audience in New York City earlier this month. When the event ended, one stranger after another came up to me and said how much our talk had opened their eyes, challenged their views on parenting. Clearly, we're all worried about our kids, about ourselves for that matter, about society at large, and we're all looking for answers. I hope you'll come away from this episode feeling like you're not alone and like there are things we can do together to dismantle the achievement culture that has us in its clutches. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Okay, so the conversation we're about to have tonight is my favorite kind of conversation because it's, on the one hand, this is a practical conversation. We're solving problems that we have in our home that many of you may have in your lives, addressing the excessive stress that many of our kids are experiencing, sometimes really challenging their mental health, their sense of self. And it's also a conversation that I think will be deeply interesting because we, we want to understand more broadly how we got here, what the technological and cultural forces are that, that made this happen, and importantly, where they're likely to take us next. And we have the perfect two people with us tonight to help us accomplish these lofty goals. The first is journalist and mother, Jenny Wallace, who's written a book, an instant New York Times bestseller called Never Enough, When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic and What We Can Do About It. And the second is Yale Law School professor, Daniel Markovitz, whose book, The Meritocracy Trap, How America's Foundational Myth Feeds Inequality, Dismantles the Middle Class and Devours the Elite. This is an important book that made waves when it came out in, in 2019, uh, and I had the great pleasure of talking with Daniel uh, back then when the book first came out. It's continued to be top of mind for me, Daniel, and, um, and I know I think it was, it was an influence for Jenny in writing Never Enough. So Jenny, starting with you, can you tell us a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? So in 2019, a few things were happening. The first was my child was going into high school. And I realized that I had four years left to give him all the coping skills, all the knowledge, everything he would need so that he would be able to thrive when he left home. So that was, that was one thing that was going on. The second thing was in 2019, I wrote an article for the Washington Post 
which was reporting on two national policy reports. One was the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the other, the National Academies of Sciences, that found students attending high-achieving schools. Um, Those are public and private schools all around the country where kids go off to competitive four-year colleges, where schools are well-resourced and they offer extra, you know, lots of extracurricular offerings. Those kids were now officially at risk, meaning they were two to six times more likely to suffer from clinical levels of anxiety and depression, and two to three times more likely to suffer from substance abuse disorder than the average American teen. So these were my kids that I was writing about, and that's what really set me on this path. I noticed that you didn't mention that you graduated from Harvard, where you met your husband, that your kids go to competitive uptown private schools. So you have some firsthand knowledge of achievement culture. I mean, this is you're, you're writing about your own life to some degree, right? And what you're navigating. I am. And I I think what I was noticing at the time was, you know, when I was growing up, achievement mattered, right? I was a high achiever. I got a lot of joy from achieving. I wanted to be the heads of sports and activities and get good grades. But what I was seeing was so different with my kids is that when I was growing up, being successful, being high achieving was just one in a smattering of things that were important to my family and to the larger society. And now what, I, what I've been seeing in my research and in my own home is, is how easily a child's sense of self can become wrapped up in their achievements where they feel like they only matter when. And so while I was a high achiever, it didn't define me or my life the way it seems to so many kids today. Daniel, how, how about how about you? Can you share your background, your journey, and and the thesis of the meritocracy trap? Sure. So I guess I, I came to the book by three routes. The first is that I attended what would I guess now be called an urban public high school in Texas, and then I went to a series of fancy universities, ending up at Yale Law School. And the kids I went to high school with, I think, had just as much native talent and spark and cleverness as the kids I went to law school with, but had in a variety of ways much less good life outcomes, at least along economic dimensions, than the kids I went to law school with. Um, And I was curious to understand exactly why. In some sense, it's not a surprise that privilege reproduces itself over time, but to be able to work out the details of how that happened was interesting to me. Then the second was that when I first started teaching at Yale Law School in around 2000, my students were pretty pleased with their circumstances overall. But by 2015 or so, that was no longer true of my students. Um, They felt on the one hand that the advantages they were getting were closely connected to the exclusion of many other people from similar advantages. And on the other hand, they felt like they had won a kind of a Pyrrhic victory in which the prize that they got was just more grind at things that they didn't choose and that they felt like they had been working at this for so long that they had unlearned how to value things because they were constantly trying to do what other people said was valuable. And and then when I combined these two and look back at the kids I went to high school with, they were doing a lot less well financially and they had a lot less social esteem, uh, but many of them were quite a lot happier Mm, than my students. And I was interested in, in that dynamic. The third path in, which is interesting to me, but probably not interesting to you, I report it only as a a plug for for scholarship. 
is that I had early on written some articles in technical areas of moral philosophy about distributional equality. And some people had criticized them. And I had had the feeling that I was right inside the discipline. But I came to recognize that the thing I was right about was nonsense. And that the traditional ways that people on the left were thinking about economic inequality had lost connection with what actual inequality looked like in our civilization. And I was interested in trying to figure out why an entire tradition that I'd devoted many years of my life to had gone wrong. And, and part of your thesis, I think, Daniel, is that everyone loses in this, in this kind of late-stage meritocracy. You write, meritocracy has become a gilded cage that excludes everyone else and ensnares those inside it. So meritocracy is the form of social organization that distributes advantage based on accomplishment. And not breeding, not race, not gender, but accomplishment. And accomplishment has several inputs. It has talent, it has effort, but it also has training. And training works. And early on in our meritocracy, it was replacing a system that distributed advantage based on breeding, on race, on gender. And the old elite was, to be blunt, not very hardworking and not very smart. And so when you made advantage turn on accomplishment, a whole new elite came up. But the new elite was very smart and had an unmatched capacity and an endless taste for training its children. And the consequence of this is that now meritocracy, because training is so important, is the principal axis of inequality of opportunity in our society. So that's how the middle class gets excluded. And at the same time, training is not fun for the trained. The rich kids spend their whole life, and this is the thing that your book documents so yeah, brilliantly, yeah. being poked, prodded, having as much training squeezed into them as they can hold, and that's another way of destroying a life. And that's the sense in which the system that we've built actually benefits nobody. One question that might be on the minds of some listeners is, is this really new? How, how new is this? Because, I mean, I, I will say that I, I experienced a pressure cooker high school a lot of the characteristics that you describe in your book, Jenny, were, were present in my, in my high school experience. What evidence is there that the experience that our kids are having today is fundamentally different from prior generations? Over the last several decades, there have been several studies done that have looked at how students today are facing pressures of needing to be perfect. Uh, there were economists that have looked at this over time, why is the bar always improving and getting higher and higher and higher? And, you know, there are a few reasons, but the one that really resonates with me is what I call, you know, in the book, the economic story. So when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, life was generally more affordable. Housing, healthcare, higher education, everyday items like food were more affordable. There was slack in the system. So a parent like mine could be relatively assured that even with some setbacks, even with some bad grades, that their children would most likely be able to replicate their childhoods, if not do even better than their own parents did. That's always been the American dream, to do even better than your parents. But modern parents today are looking at a very different economic picture. We are seeing the, the first generation, the millennials, who are not doing as well as their parents Modern parents are absorbing macroeconomic forces like globalization, the crush of the middle class, the steep inequity that's been ushered in. 
Um, and so, you know, I think what's different today than when we were growing up is that modern parents, whether we're aware of it or not, are really betting big that early childhood success, getting our kids into a quote unquote good school, will act as a kind of life vest in a sea of economic uncertainty. We don't know what half the jobs are going to be when our kids are out on the scene. So it's, we don't quite, you, it's always been the job of a parent to prepare a child for the future, right? That's our job. But never has the future felt so fraught and uncertain. And so I think a lot of parents are hoping that that life fest of a college will keep them afloat in a sea of economic uncertainty. But what we are seeing and what I found in my reporting is that that life fest is drowning too many of the kids we're trying to protect. And we see that manifested in, in the data around, as you referenced earlier, the rates of, of anxiety disorder, of depression, of substance abuse are, are, I think you said like two to five times greater for kids in overachieving schools compared with the general population of teenagers. So our children, for those who are in this, in this category, are an at-risk group to a degree that's, that, that's pretty frightening. And it's not just that it's during the high school years that they're at risk. What researchers have done is they've studied the same cohort going into the 30s, and they have found similar patterns of substance abuse disorder and anxiety and depression. And as one sociologist I quote in the book said, what gets in early gets in deep. This is not to say, no. of course, that we can't reset, that we can't change our ways, we can't repair, but it gets in deep. To put a little color on it, you, you, uh, your description of, of Molly and her, and her homework and, and athletics ritual really stuck with me. Do you want to share that detail? Oh my gosh. Molly was one of the early interviews uh, that I conducted for the book, and she identified, self-identified as a healthy achiever, she told me. Um, she, she, when I met her, I asked her you know, about her sleep, you know, what time she went to bed at night. She said, well, I'm not like my friends who go to bed at 3 a.m. or wake up at 3 a.m. to finish their homework. She said, I really am not a night person. So I go to bed at midnight and I wake up at five sometimes to do, you know, the finishing touches on a paper or study for a test. And when I asked her how, as a varsity athlete, she was able to, you know, maintain her stamina on five hours of sleep, she answered me without any irony. And she said, oh, those days I run the laps and practice with my eyes closed. And that, I thought, was a real devastating metaphor for our children growing up today, running in laps and running races that they don't, they haven't necessarily signed up to run. And we, as their parents, have, have put them in this race. And I'm guilty of it as well with my three kids. Of course, many parents in these communities are, are suffering as well. Daniel, you teach students at Yale Law School. Presumably, many of them go on to become partners in New York law firms where seven-figure salaries are not uncommon, making it possible to join the middle class of private school New York. Um, <laughs> Do you think these wildly successful attorneys are happy by and large? There's a, there's a complication here. Um, many of them are working hours that make them subjectively unhappy. And, and there is actually now systematic data in which, uh, particularly in, in law firms, lawyers are surveyed and asked 
uh, if you had a choice next year between the same hours as this year at the same pay, fewer hours at less pay, or more hours at more pay, which would you choose? And north of three-quarters of them choose fewer hours at less pay. So there's a sense in which that suggests that they're not getting the combination of income and work that they want. And in that sense, they're frustrated and unhappy. Um, I think more important, actually, than the subjective question is, are their lives going well? Um, that is to say, are they devoting their energies to activities that they reasonably think are meaningful, that are producing valuable relationships, valuable outcomes for them? Are they promoting causes that they believe in? Are they engaging in tasks that they think are rewarding with reason and so on? Uh, and, and there, the answer increasingly is no. Many of them are working at tasks uh, that are simply spinning an extractive economy mm. in faster yeah. cycles. And it's not just lawyers. And it goes to a deep question about what achievement involves. And, and Jenny, some of the things you're writing about pick this up too, including the athletics analogy. So one thing I encourage all of you to do, you can go online and you can see a side-by-side -side video of the gold medal winning vault in the women's Olympic gymnastics in sometime in the 1950s and sometime the, in the 2000 aughts. And the woman who wins the gold in the post-2000 vault, before she hits the pummel house, has done 11 twists that are more difficult and more sophisticated than the twist that the 1950s winning woman did as her whole event. Now, the question is, who has achieved more? There's one sense in a superiority-based competitive culture, the answer is obviously the post-2000 winner. But it turns out that post-2000 gymnastics is a form of abuse for the people who participate in it. Yeah. Because in order to achieve the post-2000 vault, you have to deform your body, starve yourself, injure yourself. You're not going to be a healthy person in your 50s or 60s. And moreover, gymnastics as a sport on the 50s model is something that unites spectators and performers so that we can all imagine that we are participating together in a communal form of human excellence. And gymnastics on the post-2000 model is something that separates spectators from performers. We, we aren't gymnasts in the sense in which Olympic athletes are gymnasts today. They have a completely different outlook, worldview, body shape, everything. It, it's not at all clear that the modern version is more excellent. I suspect it is much less excellent. And part of the interesting thing about the phenomenon, the economy and the society that we've built is you have these structural forces that drive us all to extremes of performance in order to outcompete one another, but in races that if we step back and think about them, don't actually have any human value to the running. Mm -hmm. and, and that's something we need to figure out structurally how to redesign our, our economic and social systems to remove those pressures so that we can do what's worthwhile. Can I jump in a little yeah, bit on this? Yeah. Uh, I think I love your example of the 1950s. I think what you're what you're talking about, you know, if I were to just zoom really far out, is the definition of success. I'm very ambitious, but I am ambitious for so much more than my work. And I want my kids to be ambitious for so much more than their work. I want them to be ambitious in their relationships, to have good marriages, to have good friendships, to have hobbies, to have days where they have joy where they find joy in everyday things. So one of the things that I didn't realize when I was researching this book is a lot of our well-being and mental health is linked to our values 
And so researchers who study values, I'm going to really oversimplify this, but find we all have roughly a dozen or so core values inside all of us. Researchers split it up to extrinsic values and intrinsic values. Extrinsic values are things like career success for status or for money, driving a nice car, you know, living in a big house. Those are extrinsic values. Intrinsic values are things like being a good friend, being good to the environment, uh, being a kind person, a good citizen, uh, spiritual growth. So we all have these core values, but depending on our environment, certain values are activated more than others. And the reason this is important is because values are a zero-sum game. The more you focus on extrinsic values, the less room you have in your life to focus on the intrinsic ones. And here's why that's important, because extrinsic values are heavily correlated with negative mental health and substance abuse disorder, whereas intrinsic values are correlated with the things we want for our kids, well-being, good relationships. And so I, I think what happens is when you are working these long hours, you just don't have room in your life. You don't have control over your day. And we know just basic human needs, self-determination, um, being able to determine how we spend our time is heavily correlated with well-being and, and mental health. So that's just really long-winded way of, of saying, I think we, we need to be really cognizant of the values that are being activated. It's not that people in high achieving communities don't have good values. It's that the other extrinsic values are just always being activated. Just on yeah. this point, yeah. if, I, if I'm not Please. hijacking the yeah. conversation too much, um, you know, one of the things that happens is uh, when you have a certain kind of market-based work culture, things like your wage or how large an organization you run become publicly notorious to everyone around you. And there's a way to compete with others along those dimensions. Uh, but things like whether you are a good spouse, a good parent, a good child, loyal to your friends, don't produce this kind of publicity and don't get support from the social structures that you're involved in. And so all the pressure is in favor of things that probably for most people, especially once you have a certain baseline of material success, don't actually make you better off. And it's hard to see that and remember that. You know, actually, just on Tuesday, um, it's just the time when law students are starting to look for summer jobs. And so my first-year students were asking me for advice about how they should think about their summer jobs. And um, my, my first piece of advice was that they need to remember that from now on, all their greatest failures will be personal rather than professional. And that they should like focus yeah. on avoiding personal failures. Yeah. And their yes. professional lives are going to go a little better or a little worse. But once they're at Yale Law School, their professional lives are going to go fine. Many more of them will get divorced than fail to make partner. And if you put the point that way and ask, where shall I allocate yeah. my efforts? it seems like it's worse for you to get divorced than to fail to make partner. Yeah. And yet that's not the way the system that they live in pushes them to think about their lives. And it, it may be harder to stay married when you're working 80 hours a week. And, and you describe, Daniel, the elite as a new class of exploited labor. Uh, and we think of like, you know, bankers hours used to be 10 to three. And we used to think of like, the rich guy is like fat with a cigar, <laughs> right? And, and now, now the wealthy are extremely fit, 
frenetic working uh, more hours than than the less wealthy, I believe. I mean, this is the deepest, I think, structural force that's facing all of us. For most of human history, the greatest asset in the world was land. That's what wealth was. It was to own land. And then wealth became to own machines, factories, and briefly it became to own financial capital. Today, the greatest asset in the world is human capital, the skill and training of free workers, and by my count today, for example, the richest 1% of U.S. Americans owe three-quarters of their income to selling their own labor. My guess is most people in this room owe a whole bunch of their income in one way or another to selling their own labor. Uh, the richest 0.1% owe two-thirds of their income to selling their own labor. By comparison, in 1920, the richest 1% owned about a sixth of their income to selling their labor. Now, if you own a farm or land or an estate, your wealth makes you free because you can mix your wealth with someone else's labor— and extract the surplus as rents and devote your time to whatever it is you want to do. But if you own your own human capital, the only way you can extract income from your wealth is by mixing it with your own labor and by devoting your labor to whatever the market will pay for. And so whereas for previous elites, their wealth made them free, for this elite, wealth ties you to long hours at tasks that you can't choose. And in a very literal sense, what's happened is that Marx's analysis of alienated and exploited labor has just moved up the class structure. And alienated and exploited labor, which Marx thought resided in the proletariat, now resides in the elite. Now, I'd love to take a pause here and ask, and ask a broader question. Should we care about the suffering of rich people? Um, <laughs> This is something that I'm sure, as you were writing your book, Jenny, uh, occurred to you because <laughs> you're writing a book about, you know, these overprivileged kids and and their suffering. How do you answer that question? So I asked that exact same question <laughs> to the leading researcher, Sonia Luther, whose um, research is throughout my book. And she slammed her hand on the table, which she did a couple of times in my book, you'll read. Um, and she said, a child in pain is a child in pain and neither chooses the circumstances. And pain and empathy and sympathy is not zero sum. You can care about all of these kids. Um, and so she put me in my place. And I'll be honest with you, when I traveled around the country, I saw real suffering. I saw real pain. I met with families who had lost a loved one to suicide because of the pressure. I saw the pain that really ravaged those families and the deep regret of parents. So if anyone were to say those kids and those families are not in pain, they need to spend 10 minutes talking to them and they will see real pain. And, and, to, and to, uh, to complete the picture, the children of factory workers are experiencing a different form of pain, which is that they have no access to, they're not even invited to this party, right? right. right? They have no access right. to the economic opportunities right. that are that are available right. so, to the wealthy right. and, and they're blamed for it, right? right. They, they A, right. have no opportunities and B, it's their fault because right. they didn't measure up right. to a test that they yeah. can't possibly right. uh, compete on. So, I mean, so on this point, one point is, and this is what Jenny has just said, you know, there's political caring and then there's existential caring. And I don't know that the excluded middle class has much reason to care about what we're describing. But existentially, everybody's person's life is their only life, and suffering is suffering. In addition, though, as you've pointed out, Rufus, 
the flip side of the pressure on the elite is the exclusion of the rest of society, and not just the material exclusion, but the imaginative insult that's added to it. You know, in a race hierarchy, if you don't measure up, it's because you're being discriminated against. In a meritocracy, if you don't measure up, it's because you're not good enough. And so there's a moral insult added to the economic injury of exclusion, which makes the exclusion much more harmful for those who are excluded. So that's another reason to care. A final reason to care, and this goes back to something I said right at the beginning, um, you know, the United States right now has produced as great a concentration of wealth in as narrow an elite uh, as was experienced by Rome at the height of its empire. That's how concentrated privilege is in our civilization right now. And if you look all across human history, across all of space and time, there are only one and a half instances in which a society has concentrated economic privilege and power in as narrow an elite as we have done now. And that has not been unwound by either losing to a foreign foe in war or through a domestic revolution. And so unwinding concentrated economic privilege is incredibly hard to do. And one reason to care about the elite is that if the elite can be persuaded that this system is not in its interest, that increases our chances of developing a politics that can unwind it without a catastrophic unwinding. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Let's talk about what's driving all this insanity. When we think about, you know, even having written this book, Jenny saying, like, I am part of this process. I am guilty of some of this, you know, pressuring of my children. Uh, when we think about the variables that have driven this, right? The, the, the first and most obvious that comes to mind is status, right? Is that our children, their academic performance has become one of the very most important ways in which we are judged and our status is assessed. And status is clearly this deep, primal human drive. We all want to be valued by our peers in society. Jenny, you quote in the book, Loretta Bruning, who wrote a book called I Mammal. She says, if you fill a room with people who are anti-status, they will create a social hierarchy based on how anti-status they are. Uh, well, that really nails it. <laughs> so I want to really challenge us to be, to be really honest about our own experience uh, with status and how it drives a lot of the behavior of, of parents and by extension, our kids. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's a it's a fact of life. It's an uncomfortable truth that status matters to our brains, that when we are, you know, when we get, when we see a status ascent, meaning our kid gets into a good college or they do well in a tournament, we get rewarded with a pleasant neurochemical cocktail in our brain. And also, by the way, a status descent, when we see our kids fail or get rejected or 
aren't invited to the party, our brains also release a very painful neurochemical compound that forces us to take notice because it was a signal through evolution that, wow, there's something going on that's threatening you and you better pay attention. You better change what you're doing. You better pay attention to this. So, you know, the status that I see in modern parenting today is something Melissa Milkey writes about. She She's a researcher in Canada. Um, she talks about status safeguarding. So modern parents are told, you guys are intensive parents, helicopter parents, you're ruining your kids. What Milkey's research has found actually is that intensive parenting is really this idea of weaving individualized safety nets for each one of our kids because we are sensing fewer and fewer guarantees for our children. And we are also primed with not wanting them to drop in status. So what is intensive parenting? And I think about it this way when I find myself, you know, intensively parenting. I think of myself as status safeguarding. I'm just putting these safety nets in place because I can't trust our government uh, and our society to really be the safety net for my kids. So this is a very long way of saying status matters, but it doesn't matter in the way that we think it does. And, and just one last thing I will say to people is you are going to get, you're going to notice those status, pleasant and painful feelings. And what I want you to think about is that in, in modern times, it's a false smoke alarm. So they call it the smoke alarm principle, meaning that, you know, you, your kid doesn't do well in, in a soccer game. You get that painful brain, that, that neurochemical release. What you can say to yourself is, oh, that's just a bagel burning. I'm not actually being threatened. My life is not actually being threatened. So our modern lives have not, our, our evolutionary wiring has not caught up to modern times. So a lot of our stress, our status, anxiety is based on these evolutionary roots that can really take us in wrong directions if we're not aware of it, if we don't question the the status within us. Status obsession can seem, you know, vain or irrational, but both of you write about a fundamental and and somewhat new degree of economic insecurity that is experienced by even the upper class today that is that undergirds this. Can you guys speak a little bit to some of the data and and why it is that it's not irrational it seems for parents to be genuinely concerned about the economic future of their children? If you look at um, children who are less wealthy than their parents, you know, the, the cohort that was born in the 40s and 50s, almost everybody ended up wealthier than their parents. The cohort that was born in the 80s and 90s, many, many people are now less well-to-do than their parents. But what's striking is that the extent of the drop-off in the odds of doing better than your parents is smallest for the poor and the very rich. So the poor and the very rich also are less likely to out-earn their parents than the poor and the very rich were in 1940, but only a little less likely. It's the broad middle class that has the biggest decline in its odds of out-earning its parents. And, and that's because what's happened is, for one thing, growth has just slowed, and that's why everybody is less likely to out-earn their parents. But at the same time as growth has slowed civilization-wide, the dispersion of growth has increased enormously. 
And so wages have actually gone up at the bottom of the distribution. Some of the poverty rate is lower than it was at the middle of last century. But they've gone up a huge amount at the top of the distribution. And the people who are systematically being excluded are the broad middle class. And the broad middle class reaches up increasingly into the 80th percentile of the income distribution or something like that. So these are people who in some comparative sense at this moment are doing pretty well. But these are many of the same people who are at the biggest risk of doing much, much worse in the future. And that's where a lot of this pressure comes from. Can I tell a quick story? Yeah. So um, there's something that I've termed the encore effect in the book, which is the particular burden of a privileged child who knows that they will likely not be able to replicate their upbringing and their parents' success. And it was really exemplified in this interview I had with a mother whose son was in eighth grade. And she was tucking him in and he said, mom, if I want to be an architect, where would I live? She was living in New York City. And she said, oh, honey, you could live anywhere. Everywhere needs architects. And he says, well, I zillowed our apartment and I know how much my school costs. And I Googled the average salary of an architect. And I can't give my children what you have given me. It does not take a forensic accountant to figure out how much a vacation costs, how much a car costs, what your apartment costs. And so there is this mental burden. It's a privileged burden, but it's still a burden on children. And I think going back to the values conversation, why it is so important, particularly in times like these, when our children are less likely to replicate their childhoods, to really talk about what matters to you as a family. What are your real values? What do you really think of as success? Well, that's a great segue to get into the details of what we can do as parents, as individual families, as educators, as members of these communities, to increase the well-being of our kids. You say, Jenny, that you identified a category of students who were doing well despite the pressures in their environment, which, which you called healthy strivers. What makes a kid a, a healthy striver? Yeah, so both as a journalist, but also as a mother, I wanted to know who were the kids who were doing well despite the pressures? What, what did their parents focus on at home? What was school like? What were their relationships like with their peers? And with the help of a researcher at Baylor, I came across a few dozen common threads that these healthy strivers had in common. Basically, it boils down to this idea that healthy strivers had a high level of what psychologists call mattering. They felt valued for who they were deep at their core. And importantly, they were relied on to add meaningful value back to their friends, to their families, to their larger communities. It didn't mean that these healthy strivers didn't have setbacks or failures, but mattering acted like a kind of buoy that lifted them up. Failures were not an indictment of their worth. The kids I met who really were struggling the most fell into two camps. One was that they felt like their mattering, their worth, was contingent on their performance. They only mattered when. And the other group of kids were kids who felt like they were important to their families. They felt significant, but they were never depended on to add value back to anyone other than themselves. So the way I described it in the book, they lacked social proof that they mattered. They heard it in words, but they didn't see it in action. 
Yeah, I, I love this word mattering and, and, and this concept of it. And I, I, it almost has physics associations for me, the sense of like matter has mass and mass has gravitational pull. And we want to feel that we have, that we exert a gravitational pull on others and that we have substance that we're, and, and that people see that and feel that, right? Um, this crisis of mattering applies to adults as well. We know that wealth is, is wildly asymmetrically concentrated. Respect in our society is also wildly asymmetrically concentrated. And that feels like mattering. People fundamentally want to be seen. They want to be respected. And, and if parents don't feel that they matter, you can have a prestigious job and make a lot of money, but not, but not feel that, you, that, that, that you're mattering in a way that, uh, that is legitimate. I think that's absolutely true. And the researchers who study mattering argue, and I agree with them, that after the instinct for food and shelter, it is the instinct to matter that drives human behavior for better or for worse. So when we feel like we matter, we want to show up to the world in positive ways. We want to contribute at home. We want to contribute at school. We want to be a member of society and show up in positive ways. When we are chronically made to feel like we don't matter, when we are made to feel marginalized or that our mattering is contingent, we can cope with that in two destructive ways. We can either turn against ourselves and turn inward, become anxious, depressed, maybe turn to substances to alleviate temporarily the pain, or we can act out. Um, you know, school shooters among the most tragic oh. examples. Oh, I don't matter. I'll show you I matter. So I think for all of us in society, and we're seeing this, like you said, in, in adulthood, I think mattering is really at the root of so much suffering today. And what I just would love to say, if I can, is mm. one thing that really struck me in the research, and this is according to decades worth of resilience research, that is a child's resilience rests fundamentally on the resilience of the adults in their lives. And adult resilience rests on relationships. So the multi-billion dollar wellness industry would love to tell us, just take a bubble bath, download this meditation app, you'll be stress-free. Like those are great stress reducers, but they are not going to give you the resilience to be, in the words of Sunya Luther, first responders to our kids' daily struggles. The only thing that could give us resilience is relationships. And it doesn't take a lot of time. And it's not that the parents I met in these communities didn't have friends or relationships. It's that they often didn't have the time or the emotional bandwidth to invest in their relationships so that those people, those friends could be sources of support when needed. It is not putting your oxygen mask on first, which is what we are told time and time again. It's having one or two or three people in our lives who know us intimately, who can see when we're struggling, gasping for air, and who will reach over and put that oxygen mask on for us. That is a very different kind of relationship, and our modern achievement culture doesn't often make room for it. Mm, wonderful. Returning to the important topic of my parenting inadequacies, uh, and how to redress them. Um, you refer to different styles of parenting, authoritarian, authoritative, and permissive. Which of these styles do you recommend, Jenny, to the parents among us? And after this, I'll tell you which we are. 
And, and, and where are we headed? So I would say authoritative is what the psychologists will tell you is a more balanced approach to parenting. So authoritative parenting is helping to raise critical thinkers. Think of it that way, as opposed to authoritarian, which is do as I say, because I'm telling you to do that, or permissive, which is do whatever you want to do. Um, you know, when they when researchers look at mental health outcomes um, with kids, it's kids with the t- authoritative parents who generally do well on average. Um, and those are the kids who parents are investing a lot of time and a lot of bandwidth and a lot of energy convincing them to do things as opposed to telling them to do things. Mm. Um, but it is, it is, it, the effort is to maintain a deep relationship with our child, to be that adult that they can turn to and talk to and not be afraid of, and also to be that adult, that sort of steady presence in their lives that maybe permissive parents aren't as much. Um, so authoritative parenting, I think, is where the research really winds up the sweet spot. Well, this is this is bad news for our household because I think we're a little closer to permissive, although we somewhere in between. Um, you know, when you were speaking earlier about the importance of intrinsic motivation, I'm very conflicted on this question, which is which is it does seem that there's a trade-off between on the one hand, there's this view that discipline p- can precede passion, right? That you can develop passion for playing the violin only after you've learned to play the violin, which requires a certain amount of authoritative encouragement. But on the other hand, it, it does seem that there's an inverse relationship between the pressure we put on kids and their natural intrinsic affection for that which they choose to do. It's so funny you bring that up. I have a story in the book, which is one of my most embarrassing parenting stories. Um, so my son, this is my poor oldest child. He's going to be very resilient. Um, he was in middle school and I was getting bizarrely panicked about his future and realizing that he didn't have a thing. Like everybody, every other kid seemed to have a thing. They were the chess guy or the soccer guy or, and you know, I was thinking what latent talents am I neglecting in my own three kids? You know, I would take him to the supermarket and he'd be really interested in the plastic bags by the produce section, the contraption that, that separates those bags. And I'm like watching him and not interrupting his interest in it. And I'm thinking, this is industrial engineering. How do I find a class for him on this? So he was in sixth grade and he was also really interested in architecture. So I Googled up intro to architecture and design classes and I started calling around. I called the Cooper Hewitt and I said, do you have any classes for sixth graders? And they laughed and said no. And I just kept going down the list and I finally found a class where the guy said, okay, I'll let you come. I'll let you bring him. You have to buy two seats because it's really meant for college-age kids or seniors in high school. And I'm like, great. We will sit there. We'll be quiet. William comes home from school, and I say to him, I have some good news. I found an intro to architecture class for you. And he said, Mom, I love architecture. Please don't ruin it for me. Well, good for him for saying something, right? Because not every kid does, right? A lot. I mean, a lot of kids get the joy of, of learning gets squeezed out of them, right? And we're beaten out of them, yeah. Well, let's turn to how we fix this system, this broken system. And Daniel, maybe we should start with what we need to do to address the education system. Um, I mean, you, you, I, I loved your observation that your, your, your alma maters here, Harvard and Yale, are, are basically large hedge funds with teeny schools attached to them, right? 
that, that enjoy nonprofit status. What do we need to do to make our, starting with the education system, more responsive to the needs of, of humans? Well, I think a, a couple things, uh, sort of baseline observations. The first is that we're not doing a great job, but we are doing a better job at reducing the gap between the education that is made available to children from poor families and children of middle-class families. That there have been a variety of policy changes, some constitutional litigation in certain states, some funding changes that have brought the poorest schools nearer to the average school. Still worse, and the gap is still bigger in the United States than in other rich countries, but less bad than it was 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, but at the same time, the gap, for example, in a typical high school between what a middle-class high school invests per child per year in the United States and what a poor high school invests is about $4,000 a year. Uh, whereas the gap between what a typical middle-class high school invests in a child and what the top 20 private schools invest is $60,000 a year. So the rich middle-class gap is 15 times bigger than the middle-class poor gap. Uh, and this is in a world in which the richest workers, who are overwhelmingly the graduates of these elite schools, are capturing almost all the income gains. And notice this is important because the strategy that society has tried to use to reduce the middle-class poor gap cannot work to reduce the middle-class rich gap. The strategy has been to invest more in poor schools. But we are not rich enough as a society to give every middle-class child a $75,000 a year education. We, just, it's, we can't do it. And in that sense, education is like health care. We're not rich enough as a society to give everybody what the richest people buy for themselves if they're allowed to buy as much as they want. And that means there has to be rationing at the top. So we have to find a way to ration the educational expenditures that the richest parents can devote to their own children. There are ways to do that. I think the most natural way to do it is to take away the not-for-profit status of elite private educational institutions, not just universities, but high schools, middle schools, kindergartens, preschools, uh, and, and this is a little harder to do legally, also public school districts that are effectively private schools because they're local and paid by real estate taxes in places like Starsdale where all the houses are expensive. And unless these institutions admit many, many more kids from outside of the elite, and the only way they can admit enough more kids from outside the elite is by massively increasing their enrollments. Um, now, that is different from what elite schools are trying to do now. What elite schools are trying to do now is they're trying prayerfully to find deserving outsiders to admit while retaining their exclusivity. And that strategy cannot work. There aren't enough outsiders who can meet their thresholds. And it produces a zero-sum competition between the rich and the rest for places Whereas massively increasing enrollments benefits everybody who's now excluded from the elite, and also, and Jenny, for the reasons that you give, it actually benefits the elite by dramatically reducing the competition to get into these places and reducing the difference between getting to go to Princeton and getting to go to Rutgers. And that is good for the rich. So this is a very particular instance of the principle we talked about earlier, that if we can persuade elites that the current system is not serving their interests— then that makes political change possible that otherwise wouldn't be possible. And this is just an example of that. 
And how how is it going persuading elites that that it's not working for them? I, I think I think right. convincing the elites to right. uh, lose the nonprofit well, well, status well, of their schools right. is, is not going to be right. easy. So um so my own university is ruthless in protecting its tax exemption and not for profit no. status. Uh, but here are two things that are also true. Um, first, it is increasing its enrollments. And a bunch of elite universities are beginning to do this. And partly that's because they're beginning to see that sustaining their social legitimacy depends on serving more people from more kinds of backgrounds. Roughly speaking, half of Americans now think colleges and universities are bad for the country. Roughly two-thirds of Republicans think that. Wow. Um, th this, this is <laughs> yeah. not a system, a situation that the richest universities can survive in a democracy for very long. And certainly the future can't look like the past. Um, if you do a back of the envelope calculation, there are people I know in the audience who are in finance. Uh, so think about this for a moment. Project out the growth of the 10 largest university endowments in America using the growth rate that those endowments have enjoyed for the past 30 years and just project it 150 years into the future. And then project out US household wealth using the growth rate that U.S. household wealth has enjoyed for the past 30 years. And if you do those two things, what you will see is that by roughly 2250, the 10 richest universities in America will own 100% of America. <laughs> and, and that is not going to happen. And so the interesting question, if you're running one of these universities, is how will it not happen? Will it not happen in a way that's consistent with your underlying educational and academic values by broadening your appeal, making yourself less elite, making yourself more democratic, more open to more kinds of people, which would incidentally improve your scholarship and education. It would make your degree less valuable, but it would make your intellectual life better. Or will it happen because you become too top-heavy, too rich, and a mob comes with pitchforks, which is the other realistic yeah. alternative. It's yeah. one or the other. And if, if, if university leaders can come to see that, they'll start taking steps in yeah. the direction of the better path. Yeah. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Let's take the time that remains to talk about how technology is in the process of radically changing all these dynamics that we're talking about. Unlike previous tech revolutions, AI is coming for white-collar jobs, for the jobs of elite kids. A recent Goldman Sachs report concluded that one-fourth of current work tasks could be automated by AI, but 44% of legal jobs, 35% of business and financial operations, 29% of computer and mathematical, 
28% of healthcare practitioners, even 27% of farming, fishing, and forestry. There's nowhere to go. Daniel, legal jobs are at the top of the list. How is this likely to change how we educate our kids? Um, so I think the first thing one has to form is a view about what this technology is and what it's like. And just to put my cards on the table, uh, my view is that ChatGPT is a very sophisticated way of gathering, organizing, and connecting data, um, but it is not anything like general intelligence, and it never will be. And, and if you believe it is like general intelligence, then you're in a very different world because then you're worried about apocalyptic outcomes. And so I am not worried about that, but I am worried about the labor market disruptions. And it will hit white-collar workers. I, I have a student who's somewhat cynical who says that if today you find ChatGPT really useful in your job, in three years you won't have a job. And, and that's a, a pretty good rule of thumb for this. And it's going to hit white-collar workers. It will not hit the most elite white-collar workers because it is not general intelligence, and it will be a complement for the most extravagant and elaborate analytic skills that human beings have. But it will be a substitute just one or two rungs down, including for sets of workers who have so far been benefiting from technological innovation rather than being harmed by it. Uh, and I think the question is going to be, what's the politics that this unleashes? Does it unleash a politics in which the middle class and to some degree the upper middle class understands that it has to make common cause with the lower middle class and working class people to restructure the way we arrange work and pay? Or does it produce a politics in which people try to build a higher fence and just get just inside of it? And it's going to be a question of for intellectual leaders and for political leaders to make it generate the benevolent politics rather than the malign one. It, it, it seems that, that there are many inside the industry who believe it's likely to be an equalizing force. Now we can, we, we can disagree with them, but um, if you consider that like most of us have an iPhone in this room that is just as powerful as the iPhone owned by the president of the United States and the CEO of Apple and GPT-4 is available for $20 a month. Um, and I think there's a view among many that we're likely to see relatively inexpensive and, and democratized distribution of this, this kind of, that, that intelligence is becoming a, a, a commodity, which, which is gonna be a, a meaningful change. The ability to have, for every child to have an AI tutor that is uh, like um, having Socrates or something as a tutor 2,000 years ago, it, it feels a lot like that could be completely transformative and more democratizing in terms of how education happens. But the implications for our kids and how they navigate school, I think, are, are uh, profound. I'm actually excited by it. I think, um, I think I, well, when I was researching this book, I was, even before ChatGBT came on the scene, I was touring schools that were disrupting the current sort of factory model way that we, we educate our kids today, where everybody has to learn the same thing at the same time, be dismissed by the bell. You know, we rank, we sort, and that exacerbates achievement pressure. I think with AI, I think schools are going to have to adjust. And I think we're going to have to focus more on the skills that we will need in the future. Critical thinking skills, more empathy, more teamwork, collaboration, and start grading kids as some schools around the country are doing today. They are 
They are creating, you know, I, I visited one school in Cleveland, a mastery school, where they were assessing students by skills. I mean, when you think about what a college degree will mean in this new learning economy, it's not that I majored in English from a cer certain school. It's what skills do I have? And how, how many times will I have to go back to school to learn new skills? Um, so I think it is going to be a positive disruption. And I've already started to see how some schools are embracing it and incorporating real life problems into everyday curriculums. And they are energizing children in a way that is exactly what learning should be. I mean, I think the other hopeful thing, Jenny, which is what you said, you know, strikingly, we have not figured out a way to perform successful teaching except through effectively one-on-one -on -one interactions between one teacher and one student. Now, sometimes the students are in a classroom, but it requires intense attention from a particular teacher to teach effectively, and we just haven't figured out a way to scale that. And so far, things like massively open online courses have been an almost total failure at scaling that. They turn out to be extremely helpful for already privileged, already educated people who've been taught how to learn and not very helpful for anybody else. But this technology might be a way to democratize the delivery of training and education, which is not the same thing as democratizing what the labor market does once people get out into it and whether the less educated and the more educated can compete with one another or not. That's a separate question. I think, Rufus, you're more optimistic there. I'm more pessimistic there. Um, but just one thing on that. Uh, there have been previous moments of technological innovation when rapid technological innovation has, in fact, had an equalizing effect on workers and wages. And then there have been moments when rapid technological innovation has had a disequalizing effect. And we're going through a moment now of great inequality driven by technology. But it's not written in the logic of technology. So, so whether which one of us is right, it depends on contingent facts about the nature of this technology, not necessary facts about all technology. Yeah. I, I should say that I'm, rel I'm, I'm pretty concerned, actually, about artificial intelligence. I just think it's going to be very good before it turns us into paperclips. You know, I think the implications for us, for parents uh, and and for adults of of these technologies are really interesting. And we, we had we had uh, a warden professor named Mauro Guillen on the show recently, who has a new book out called The Perennials, and he makes the case that this idea that we educate kids, you know, that we take you know these four years of high school and say we're going to obsess on your academic performance for four years just as your body's coursing with hormones and you're dealing with all these other things, and then we're going to put a stamp on your forehead that, that, that indicates how smart you are. And then when you get out, you're pretty much done. I mean, maybe you could tack on a few four years to specialize, but your education's over. Now you will produce, you'll become a cog in the machine. That that is just bananas as a way to think about education. And particularly now that we live in a world that's changing so quickly and, and will be changing for the next few decades so dramatically. So the point is, we should all be going back to school. I think a lot of us dropping our kids at college had the thought that like, I wanna go back to college, right? And, and his case is that we should be doing that, that every decade, uh, adults should be going back and re-educating themselves. And that we should think of education as something that happens incrementally hopefully with more intrinsic motivation at play throughout the whole course of our lives and not just something that we squeeze into this very concentrated period of time. So that, that feels to me hopeful as we think about 
the future of education? I I think it's not going to be something we should do. I think it's something we're going to have to do. I think we are going to have no choice but to be continuous learners, which actually is really exciting. Um, But I think the only way we're going to survive these these huge changes is to be open to the idea that our skills are going to expire after a certain number of years as technology improves, and we're always going to have to be learning more and more. But the one thing that brings me a little bit of comfort is that I think we are going to have to focus more on mattering at work, really having people feel valued, know exactly how they are adding value to the bottom line, appreciating them more. I have a hope that we will become more human at work too. Daniel, any any final comments? Well, I think one thing to play off of that is that there are a series of tasks that we do in our lives which are distinguished by the fact that they involve care and relationships of care for others. And one of the things about care-based tasks is that you can't value them only as a means to an end. The thing that makes them valuable is that the doing of them is themselves valuable. Um, And that's true of care in the domestic sense of parents for children or spouses for each other or children for parents or friends. But it's also true of a series of other tasks. The task of being a teacher is a care task. The task of being a doctor is a care task. The task of being a lawyer or counselor is partly a care task. And those are tasks that because they they have their value built out of the relationship between people that they involve can't be automated. Now, the function can be automated, but the value can't be automated, and it will be important to restructure our work life around those tasks. Well, I'm very happy to hear that my my job as a father will not be subcontracted out to uh, to bots uh, in the near future. Uh, Thank you so much, uh, Jenny Wallace and Daniel Markovitz, for being with us tonight. Such an interesting conversation. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Jennifer Wallace's new book is Never Enough, When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic and What We Can Do About It. Pick up a copy wherever good books are sold. It's a great read for parents and teens alike. If you were impressed by Daniel Markovitz's casual erudition and ambitious vision for how to remake our society, check out the conversation we had on this show in 2019. That episode is called Success, The Dirty Secret of Getting Ahead. And you can find it by scrolling back through our feed or by following the link in the episode notes. The discussion you just heard was part of an ongoing series of insightful, thought-provoking conversations that we're recording live at BetaWorks in New York's Meatpacking District. We've already lined up guests for our January and February events. I don't want to give too much away, but I can tell you that We'll hear from one of the world's leading venture capitalists about why he still believes in blockchains and Web3, and from a New Yorker staff writer about the tools you can use to connect with anyone. If you'd like to learn more about our upcoming events, send us a note. We're at podcast at nextbigideaclub.com. Today's episode was produced by achievement culture survivor, Caleb Bissinger, sound designed by the incomparable Mike Toda. The good people at the LinkedIn Podcast Network are our authoritative parents. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week.